Before we kick off today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have agreed a couple of major partnerships in the last few weeks, and that means we're going to be hiring for our next season. We are looking for a producer to come in and work on the show, and that does require some experience of the audio and media industry. Secondly, we are looking for a researcher stroke head of guest bookings. This role primarily requires someone to be extremely organised, all the things that I'm not. And of course, a passion for the UK economy and entrepreneurship is essential. To find out more about the roles, check out our pinned tweet on our Twitter page, at Jimmy M. One of the biggest issues facing founders is finding amazing talent. It's one thing to have an idea, but to build it, you need talented people on your team. There's so many questions. What's the best way to do it? Where is the best place to go? How has the pandemic changed it? How do you maintain a culture with a new team when you've onboarded them in a hybrid format? We had the terrific opportunity to speak to someone who thinks about these questions more than anyone else. Laura Wilming is the head of portfolio talent at Octopus Ventures. They are part of the wider Octopus group, who are eight entrepreneurially minded companies who are together focused on investing in the people, ideas and industries that will change the world. They're also a long-term backer of this podcast. Laura's job is to oversee people and talent for the whole of the Octopus Ventures portfolio. And so it's a treasure trove of information about working, hiring, growing within startups, and how to prepare for job interviews, whether you are hiring or trying to be hired. We speak about the importance of having a professional network, the skills and jobs to look out for in the future, such as the increase in roles like chief of staff within startups. Laura spent several years working with startups in New York, notably at Harry's Razors, where she helped build a team to several hundred across the world. And while still a student, she interned with Brewdog, being one of the first eight to work there well before it became the globally recognised brand it is today. I always say each guest is a fascinating episode. Today's is no exception, but perhaps it is one of the most practical too. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Laura, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hello, thank you for having me. So tell us, what's your job at Octopus Ventures? I head up our portfolio people and talent function at Octopus Ventures. Um, We work directly with the founders that we back to help them establish a strong people and talent foundation at the early stages of their growth so that they can scale. So what does Octopus Ventures do? Octopus Ventures invests in the people and ideas that are going to change the world. 
primarily at the early stage of a company's journey, a seed and series A. We are backing the founders and then working with them directly to help them build their businesses. So give us an example of a couple of the firms that have been invested in. Yeah, so some some that have made it to the later stages of growth that people might know are Kazoo, Many Pets. Um, LV is a very uh, big brand that we're really proud of. Yeah, and we've recently had Tanya Bole on the podcast as well, who is a phenomenon uh, revolutionizing the femtech industry. And so talk us through what your role looks like. Yes, so I head up our people and talent function for the portfolio. Um, in my role, I work directly with the founders that we invest in to help them establish a strong people and talent foundation at the earliest stages that will allow them to scale. And then myself and my team, we work directly with founders in an ongoing support way to help them with anything that that might be challenging or to help through those stages of growth. So it's one of the things that I often think about when it comes to venture and fundraising more generally is that people are fundraising um, to raising financial capital to acquire talent capital. And so what's the first thing that you'd say to founders then that get the Octopus investment? This big moment, right? You're one of the uh, most prestigious, longest serving VCs in the United Kingdom. You know, backs you is a big moment. You then come in and say, right, well, what are you going to, you know, they say, well, what am I going to spend this money on? What's your advice? Our advice varies and uh, it's it's plentiful, but what we try to do first is understand what is the mission and the vision of the company and how does that founder see, like want to get there. And from that strategy, you can work backwards to figure out, okay, who do you need to hire into the team and how, like, what are the um, communication cadences? What are the goal setting uh, frameworks that you need to put in place to get that team working together to move the business forward? I guess, what's the thing that you end up saying most right at the beginning? I mean, we can go, we'll go through the journey a bit of what founders go on. But what's the thing that you say? Because, you know, Series A, you know, I mean, obviously it varies, but will sometimes be anywhere from 10 up to kind of 40 people up to that point. And there's quite a big difference for founders between running a team of 10, where they know everyone intricately, probably worked with them before as well. Um, and so what's your kind of advice as they get ready to kind of go into that scale-up phase? Yeah, so we, we work with companies at this every stage. So Seed, Series A primarily is where we are focused. And the reason for that is just as you said, the companies or founders will take our investment primarily to go and build the team in order to bring their vision to life. And that while it's like really simple to say, it's a very, very difficult thing to do for many reasons. And a lot of founders that we work with may or may not have built a team before, may or may not have uh, managed people before or led a team before. And they're doing this at a time in their business where they are trying to figure out exactly how to hit product market fit, um, trying to figure out how to grow. And so um, knowing all of those variables, the advice does vary from, from business to business because we try really hard to meet the founders and the companies where they are at. But I think we do see some trends when you go from like the seed stage to Series A, because uh, that often reflects the company's evolution and the, the number of people that are in the business. So at the seed stage that we often refer to it as um, pre-launch, so developing a product, working out, um, you know, what is the ideal customer profile? 
how you're going to take it to market. And then once you get to Series A, you should have some traction in the market already. Um, I'm sure, hopefully I'm doing my investment team some justice with this. But at the Series A stage, you're really hiring a team in order to continue to grow based on like the li little nuggets of inf like positive feedback that you've gotten from the market. And so at the series, at the seed stage, I, I think like we often are giving advice around um, making sure that the, the leaders of the company and the employees are focused at the, on the task at hand. So solving the big, big problems that they need to solve in order to kind of get the train on the tracks metaphorically speaking, because um, I think there's like a lot of people things, for instance, that are big frameworks and big processes that can feel really good to put in place, but actually might be a bit of a distraction. And so we're often trying to figure out how do you get the right people in the company at that point? And how do you work well together in order to solve some of those big problems? And then at the Series A stage, and that's when we're often talking about um, the different kind of levels in a business. So when do you bring more senior people in? When do you bring more junior people in? Um, what does that organizational structure look like? Um, do you need like manager training at that point? Because effectively you're going from being a group of people in a room to many people in many different rooms, metaphorically. Yeah. Um, and so we often talk about we're focused on like getting the right the right people at the right levels into the business at that point and on the communication. And what about at the pre-seed level, right? Because this is like one of the, yeah, and it'd be interesting to hear what you, what you define pre-seed as, um, because that's really early, right? Yeah, pre-seed pre is uh, before seed, <laughs> super, super early. And we do invest in pre-seed companies at Octopus Ventures, um, which is an amazing new, newer kind of fund that we've launched in the past year. Um, but at the pre-seed stage, these are like where founders and entrepreneurs are really um, working on the nugget of their idea, trying to bring it to life, um, even before that kind of seed stage. And so there, um, we we offer a bunch of resources. So we have um, a platform, like a digital platform, basically, where our entrepreneurs can like access information and and various um, uh, products if they need need those. Um, but what we really try to focus on with them is anything really pressing, so quick advice, because at the pre-seed stage, you usually don't have a very large team of people, um, and so the people and talent. At, the, at that pre-seed stage, uh, it's often single employees. What is the most common advice you give, and what's on that website? Because it must be a treasure trove of information. Yeah, there's a ton of information on there. It's basically, we try to take all the um, knowledge out of our heads and put it into documents. and. Um, yeah, anybody in our portfolio and outside in the world can access it. Um, yeah, at that stage, I think what, yeah, the, again, the advice really varies. I guess if I was talking to any random pre-seed founder in the moment, like my advice would be just to try to get the best people around them and to make sure that they're taking the time to meet great people. And those are either people that are wanting to be advisors to the business, who might want to come and work for you, um, who might be like a support system for that founder. Because like the, I don't think the best, like I think the best businesses are built from not just like one person's brain or like, you know, obviously I believe heavily in teams, 
Um, but they they come from like the ideas that are fed into the business and the innovation that comes from that. And so I think like it, there's a tendency to just like put your head down and, you know, jam on a, a computer all day when really at that stage, getting input from a lot of other people is actually very valuable. Um, you mentioned it earlier, but that classic startup problem of when do I need experience? When do I need some kind of grown-ups and some C-suite people to come in? Obviously, it varies on a case-by-case basis, but what are the sort of trends of advice that you give to startup founders facing that question? So, yeah, the question of do we bring in a specialist or a generalist often um, often comes up, and it's something that I think a lot of generalists and specialists think about when they're looking at going into a company. Um, I think at the earliest stage, you you do tend to see more generalists coming into the business, and actually where the group of people spike is on um, their, uh, like, I guess, grit and resiliency and energy and pace of work. Like, you want to create a culture where um, everyone is excited to work on hard problems and is capable of solving hard problems together. Um, it, it often referred to as like T-shaped people, right? People yeah. who are probably good at, really good at one thing because that's been their experience, but have the capability of stretching into other things. And so at the earliest stage, you have a lot of people usually like that, unless you are um, building something very specific in technology where you do need a specialist um, to be building that product. I still don't think you sacrifice on the cultural element. And then as you get later on uh, in the company's growth, usually what I see is like between 75 and 100 people is when you start bringing specialists in. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, having a lot of generals and no specialists at that point gets a bit um, complicated and messy. <laughs> yeah. And where, yeah, one of the reasons why I kind of started the Jimmy's Jobs podcast is because I think there's never been a better time to be starting or switching careers. More opportunities being created by entrepreneurs um, on a weekly basis. But it is harder to navigate than ever before. So it's this kind of paradox that people find themselves in. Where's your advice to founders to go and hire those generalists? Because specialists, there's, there's often specialist job boards, etc. But the, the generalist side, where do you say to people is a good place to go and hire? Yeah, it's um. There's probably not one great playbook. I my advice is generally like, do all the things all the time. So, um, oftentimes putting jobs up on job boards is difficult because not everyone's looking there for roles. Um, you often have to like convince people to come join your early stage company yeah. because less people aren't looking, right? Yeah, that's kind of the the old adage, and and like you as a business when you're early stage, nobody knows you like nobody knows that you're going to be something big in the future and the best way to convince them of that is to sit in front of people and tell them your story and get them really bought into you as a founder um at least at the earliest stages and then as the as you get like that core team in place there's um yeah there's this this notion that great people and a great team are the best attractor to other great people in a business and so I think at the earliest stage, the best thing you can do for your long-term growth people-wise is get a really strong core team in place. But um, yeah, so if you're doing job boards, I, there's like networking um, as, as a 
archaic and silly as it sounds, but just trying to like meet people every single week. Because if you talk to one person, tell them about what they're what you're building and assume they're going to go tell 10 people about it, then maybe one day you'll have somebody reach out to you and say, this sounds amazing. This is a mission I want to be a part of. Um, I, like, please give me a job, basically. And then there's another, uh, I don't know if like a lot of people use this technique, but um, I've always been intrigued about having um, an email list of like the 20 people that you know that are like, you know, those people that are just great networkers, the people that just seem to know everybody. Um, there's this idea that if you have an email list of those 20 people, uh, every quarter you send them a quick update on the business. You're like, here's what we're working on. Here's what we've accomplished. Um, not nothing to the level of what you would do with investors or employees, but just kind of throw them a bone of like some nuggets to share with people and then say, here are the key roles that we're hiring for. Who do you know? And then you have that group of people who feel like they're a part of the story, but just because that's their nature of wanting to help other people and wanting to introduce people, um, then you might might get some great introductions from that. That's a um, very, very good advice that I've written down in my notebook. How long should a founder be spending on hiring and talent? Yeah, and I, I think if they can get to at least one day a week, yeah, so 20, 20%. I guess they... Um, Don't hire me to be a CFO. One thing that we often ask is, where is hiring on the priority list? And um, off, more often than not, the answer is, it is the top of the priority list. You say, yeah. okay, how much time are you spending on it each week? Like, I don't have time for that. Like, I've outsourced it to other people. Mm -hmm. But if it's your top priority as a business and as a leader then why shouldn't you be making the time for it? And I think the the moments where in actuality it is deprioritized for other things, the results show for themselves. It takes longer to hire people. There's a sacrifice in getting the the right, the relevant skill sets into the business. Um, and it just becomes a really frustrating, annoying thing to do as opposed to like this exciting yeah. element of building a business. You should almost be, yeah, making it the first thing you do each day, et cetera, and keeping an eye on it. That's, um, that's very interesting. And how have you noticed it changing with the pandemic, right? Because obviously there's been sort of, you know, it's not been as easy to perhaps go and meet people, network and, and do that, that side of things, you know, and it's, so it's become a bit more formulaic in some regards. How, yeah, how has the pandemic impacted it? Yeah, I think, um, that, while that is true, um, with people working from home, they suddenly have more time to have random meetings and interviews because mm. um, there's there was no need to kind of do the, you know, three dentist appointments a week type yeah. thing on your calendar. And so, um, yeah, I think the working from home has given candidates a lot of flexibility in terms of talking to potential future opportunities. Um and like the way that we meet people and get introduced to people hasn't changed. I think it's just the mode in which we connect, which, um, yeah, Zoom still works pretty well for interviews. And I think we've hacked uh, how to do that at community pretty well. And whilst we're kind of on the pandemic, like one of the things that, you know, talent is crucial to fostering in companies and so on is the cultural aspect of it. So how have you noticed culture building and culture maintaining change as a result of the pandemic? 
It's, um, yeah, the debate about working from home versus working in an office versus like hybrid is one that um, is ongoing. And I think a challenge that will continue to to be working out. Um, yeah, I, it's it seems like the trend that we're seeing is that at the earliest stage of a company, so when you're building that initial team and you're starting to build kind of the early products, founders either really want employees to be in the office altogether, which makes a ton of sense because that is a fun culture to be around. Um, it's a lot easier to collaborate in person. You know, just being in a room and kicking around ideas is it's really beneficial to be in person as opposed to on Zoom. Um, and then as, you know, the business operations and uh, the processes get a bit more established, then it seems to be okay to like offer more flexibility to work from home. Um, but that being said, uh, we've seen some amazing companies launch completely remotely. And because that is their, their um, view right from the beginning, they're able to hire the people that that works for and then put in the appropriate processes and culture that allows them to be effective that way. And that employer brand bit, so that's a bit of the internal kind of cultural side of things, which I think is really interesting. But that employer brand is such a challenge for startups because, like you say, you don't know whether they're going to be a success or not. Um, and ultimately, that status of having a company that is kind of recognized and so on is a, is a big uh, thing. So how can founders sort of really get their vision across? What's the best way of them doing that because there's the zoom which works to a certain extent as well but actually there's a there's a lot of other things yeah there's what other employees say is what former employees say what customers say like what are the most kind of powerful things so i think you can split it between how are you um showing what your vision is what your employer brand is so that almost like what is the marketing around it and i think founders should do whatever feels authentic to them as a person and to the company um you know websites and like career pages are often a popular way to do this. Some of the best um, examples I have are at the earliest stages or when, you know, there there was a company I worked with in New York who um, the founder wrote basically a long form piece about why he had started the business and why he believed it was going to work and like what the challenges were. And they were able to send that off to any candidate and they were instantly bought into that. And then there, um, there's... A Which company was that? It's a company uh, called Capsule Pharmacy that I worked with uh, prior to Post Ventures. Yeah. I, I imagine you can still find that blog. Yeah, we'll try and put it in the show notes if we uh, can. Um, and then one that I really I've liked from the past six months that we've used as, as an example is a company in our portfolio called Labs. Um, and they, they are creating a digital, um, which it's like a, a new kind of like social networking app. Really, really cool a digital Polaroid camera, if you will. Um, and they, uh, the founder there just created a video of himself explaining what it does, how it's going to work, and then like, what, do you, what would you do if you came to work for the business? I think it was like a two or three minute video. Very, very simple. But the medium of the vid video and the audio, like describing it, got people from like not really understanding what the brand was or what they were doing because it wasn't out in the, in the market yet to knowing and getting excited about it very, very quickly. So that's like on the external facing um, employer branding perspective. 
I also think it's important to pay attention to the experience that candidates and employees have with the company. So when you think about the recruitment experience, when you think about your friends or family members that have gone to interview at a company, like often for them, it's a really big, important moment. Yeah. And they're probably telling a lot of their friends about it. Um, you know, they're nervous about it. And then afterwards, they like don't know how it went and they're like waiting for for a response. And when they're telling the story, they're going to say, either this is a great experience or this wasn't. Like it's a direct um, interpretation of how it will be to work at that company. And so we do spend a lot of time working with businesses at Octopus Ventures on um, that kind of candidate experience. And that includes, you know, the job description, the application process, um, when somebody's coming in to interview, what is that experience like when you sit down, making sure interviewers are prepared with great questions and making sure that the interviewers, uh, nobody's asking the same questions because I think everyone's probably had that experience where yeah, you go to a company after a of interviews and every single person asks you the same question. And you're like, oh, that's just such a waste of my time. But then um, in today's market where it's really competitive because there are so many amazing businesses competing for talent, being able to make a really good decision quickly and getting back to a candidate quickly can make or break um, their decision about whether or not to join you. Right. Okay. So that's so what kind of like preparation goes into those, what kind of preparation goes into those founder questions then? And how do you make that a great experience? Yeah, so I, the methodology we we use and often work with um, our companies on is called the scorecard methodology. Yeah. Um, we did not invent it, and it's like kind of well known in the community. But it often starts with not what is the job description, but what do you want this person to do in the role? Like, what do you want them to accomplish in the next twelve to eighteen months? And so, there's often a section that says like results expected basically. And that could be different sales goals. Um, it could be launching a certain product. Like what are the things that if you, if you reviewed the candidate or the person you hired in 12 months will tell you they did a good job or not. And then what are the core competencies related to those results expected? And then from there, you, um, you can create an interview slate. So assign a group of people to the different categories and then prep them with questions to really understand, do I think this person can accomplish that result? Like, what is my confidence level in that based on what I've asked them? That's really interesting. And how do you, with questions like that, because I know something else that um, Oxford Ventures is very keen on is the kind of diversity and inclusion agenda as well, and just diversity that we can see, but also neurodiversity and all of these uh, other aspects of it as well. How do you write questions that don't end up falling into those kind of bias traps? Um, I actually think this, yeah, the method I'm I'm recommending is um, one of the ways that you can avoid the bias trap because the first step is to have a standard set of questions that you ask to every single candidate, mm-hmm. and ideally they will be the questions and answers that give you the best signal as to whether or not this person can do the job. Um, and do it really, really well. And so asking behavioral questions about somebody's past experience and understanding like how they approached, you know, a certain challenge, 
Um, what was that experience like for them? What did they accomplish? What did they learn from it? Gathering all that information should be consistent. I think bias often, um, I mean, it, it comes into a lot of things. But when we get lazy about interviewing and only use somebody, like there's somebody's CV and, and kind of, you know, job titles or certain schools or, or different companies has our basis for deciding if they're going to be a good hire or not. And then in interviews, if we're not critical about the questions that we're asking, that leaves us open to um, making judgments based on our own biases. And so the, the thing I try to push people to do is take as many notes as possible in the interview. So really look at it as a data gathering session. Yeah. It's because if you're sitting there asking questions, receiving information, and then trying to make a decision all at the same time, like you, that's, that's how a bias is going to come in and, and really clout your judgment. You're going to leave thinking, oh, like that, that felt good. Like I really like that person. Yeah. But if you have your notes and your data and then have a scorecard to go back to, to say, does I what it learn. Yeah. Exactly. It's fascinating, particularly as we're hiring at the moment, or maybe not when this goes out, but we're, we're well, yeah, good startups are always hiring, isn't it? I guess that's the point. Um, yeah, good startups are always hiring. What's the process in terms of one of the things that I've noticed during hiring at Jimmy's Jobs now is that it is a lot easier to apply for it. So, you know, previously, let's take the stereotypical 10 years ago, short cover letter and CV. Uh, that takes a bit of time, a bit of friction to kind of do that, get the email address, find the job application, et cetera. Now on LinkedIn, you know, people can literally apply it in the sort of two, three clicks without even thinking of it. So you get more and more candidates that are applying for roles and also a change of the pandemic is it's much easier for people to do this on a daily basis, right? Like, because, you know, they haven't got the boss kind of overlooking their shoulder saying, what are you, you know, what are you doing? So that's leading to kind of like longer application processes, which is not that great for the employer or the candidate actually so how can people combat that side of things what can people do on both sides to try and speed up the quality of the process um yeah there there are a lot of different thoughts on this um i think what you're ultimately trying to do is reduce that kind of pipeline to get more uh, by the time you get to like the phone screening stage or the first phone interview that all the people that you're talking to are at least like I'm just a random number, like 70, like very yeah. relevant to the role. And so there are like qualifying questions that you can ask and um, like ahead of time or put in a few like hurdles to to that application. Um, then I think that could be helpful because, yeah, you want people to be applying and you want to be talking to people who like really are like actually really interested in the role and are actually really relevant for for that position and it sounds like in the case that you're describing and this is what i hear often is that um a lot of the the cvs that come through actually aren't very relevant uh to yeah. to that position and so there's got there are some ways that 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 you can kind of reduce that that pipeline but it does i, I do think it's a broken part of recruitment today that nobody's like fully hacked there's some interesting platforms like Ada and um mm. cord that are flipping the nature of relationships between candidates and companies at the moment in order to increase the accuracy of which candidates are applying for jobs. How did you end up kind of in the talent space? Because I think it's a, 
it's one of these areas that is becoming more and more important and you know the nature of work is changing much more but it's not really recommended as one of those kind of like traditional careers at schools and so forth mm. and yet actually it's a skill set which you know a lot of people could quite well be suited for so i'd love to understand your journey into it all my story is much like anyone in the talent space like I think everyone, most people I meet say that they just like fell into it at yeah. some point. Um, but if it's not, if it's not too much to go all the way back to university days, I think it, it really started there. So I studied um, industrial and operations engineering, uh, which is all about like operations and like supply chain and how to make uh, like manufacturing facilities more efficient. Um, I studied that design and um, there was a new kind of, minor degree you could get called entrepreneurship yeah. at the time um it was the first yeah the first year that that it was at the school uh, is when i got it but um yeah i think the combination of those things had me really interested in people and the workspace um and and the design element actually had me thinking a lot about like like i think having the design courses alongside the courses about how do you make you know these machine and people integrated workplaces more efficient. I was thinking about human-centered design really early on. And then I had this very strange um, experience in my first job outside of university at a company that um, the entire culture was an experiment. Like everything was spoken about as an experiment. It was a design and, um, and a build shop for software. Yeah. Um, I was on our what's known as the high tech anthropologist team. And so I would go out and the company is in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Menlo Innovations and they're they're still going. Um, but we would go out and observe how people were interacting with their workspaces and um it was all very like qualitative. So um we would kind of observe things and then do interviews and then bring that back to design systems um and software that would that would help them do their jobs better and ideally make it more enjoyable. And we did that, you know, like the most memorable one for me was for um, prestatician, I think. Right. Um, but like a really, there was like a really hard challenge with like fitting a prosthetic so there was alignment. And that is a soft, like almost like a tech problem that you can fix. And so we'd go in and design kind of like a tablet, a tablet screen that allowed them to do that a lot more effectively. But at the same time, the culture there um, there was no HR because everyone was HR. So yeah. we as employees were asked to build a culture uh, and try experiments that would make work more joyful. And like literally this company was optimizing for joy in in the team. And so I was kind of thrown into it right away there serendipitously. And then when I moved to New York and started working at Harry's um as a generalist, everyone was a generalist, but as the team got bigger, everyone kind of started had, having to take roles in the company, and I gravitated towards the people side of things. And that's, yeah, so that's um, Harry's kind of shaving, right, which has okay. become a very well-known brand, right? Yeah. Like, in terms of that, you know, it's, presumably it's easier to build an employer brand for a consumer-facing brand. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You have the benefit of being on the tube. Yeah. On taxis and people get it. Um, and then 
you also spent when you kind of came to the UK and so on. You spent time at Brewdog, which is probably one of the most um, famous UK kind of startups again because it's consumer facing and so on. And what number employee were you there? Yeah, so um, my Brewdog experience was very cool and wild. Um, I when I rocked up to the brewery in Fraserburgh, uh, I think there were maybe eight people in the brewery at the time. Yeah. Like eight people and a dog is like the, the kind of um, experience I had. Um, I actually worked there during university. So I I um, interned with them over the course of two summers and then, yeah, had the experience like working, doing like bits of projects between those summers when I was back at school. Um, and how did you find that? I mean, that's such a kind of formative experience whilst at university, right? Like how how did it come about and so on? Um, I, yeah, so at university, I was working at the Center for Entrepreneurship, it was called. I was a student, and um, my job, not too dissimilar to what I do today, was to advise students on the entrepreneurial resources we had at the school. And um, as students, we were charged with trying to advocate uh, for, to, to, to encourage people to get into entrepreneurship. And so I, uh, with some of my colleagues, we started a podcast and this was like back in 2009 or something, right. when podcasts weren't really like a thing. We're a big business. Um, and I, yeah, I was on the internet trying to find entrepreneurs to talk to and uh, BrewDog famously has, they were big on like YouTube and very early in doing kind of the grassroots marketing yeah, came across a video, reached out, um, and James said, did an interview with me for what reason? I have no idea. Um, but I was, yeah. You, well, you're trying to get all the exposure you can get, particularly when you're consumer brands starting out, right? It's just like a school in the States. Like they weren't like selling any beer there. It made no sense. <laughs> um, but that conversation was incredible. And I was like, you know, I could go work at like a lot of my, my peers were going to work at John Deere or like GM. Yeah over the summer and I was like I could go do that or I could try to get an internship at one of these cool startups that I'm talking to so I took a risk and I um yeah I convinced them to let me fly over and, and work with them Just kind of showed up and and was like there to do anything that needed to be doing yeah uh so what kind of jobs were you doing in the full, sort of first 10 employees um so, yeah anything and everything I was like packing packing beer um i spent a lot of time in the the tesco up in fraserborough helping hand out samples yeah um and i like oh, yeah not to get too deep into the craft beer scene but i uh where i'm from in the states is a big area for craft beer and so i could kind of see i think i like knew the trend was coming yeah and it hadn't quite been cracked um in europe yet and it's amazing to see like the growing scene here in the uk I'm beginning to spot a trend with octopus people. When we interviewed Ruth Hancock of Octopus Investments in this auditorium as well, she's talking about how she started her career at Bacardi as well. It seems oh. to be part of the uh, prerequisite for for people to understand the alcoholic trends um, in uh, in consumer facing side of things. That's an amazing story that you talk about with Brewdog there, and it's obviously worked out very well for you. If you were 22 in 2022. Where would you be looking at starting your career? Yeah, assuming I like am able to go back, be 22, knowing what I know now, I think if I were optimizing for 
long-term earnings and like job stability. I probably try to go into some kind of software development, so machine learning, um, data engineering, um, and that, yeah, there's just going to be opportunities in that for days. I think if I were to go um, try to do something that was like, felt like a personal mission to me, I think the health tech space is super exciting and technology is now advancing so that we can can do more there. Um, but I think that like me being me and always being really interested in design and, and creativity and attracted to to that and entrepreneurship in general, I think I'd definitely be starting some kind of side hustle. Yeah. I do think that is like how how we will be operating in the future and the nature of jobs and work is just changing. It's it's going to continue to change at a faster rate. And so to have something that you can always kind of like use as a place to experiment and to learn and potentially as like a, another means for income. Um, yeah. yeah, doing that, I think would be, uh, yeah, I, I think I would do that as a 22 year old. <laughs> yeah, why well, you should start a side hustle. Um, what's your advice to entrepreneurs who want to hire a chief of staff? I guess my, my instinct was like, do, do it. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, that comes from a place of, uh, yeah, if, if there is nobody in your business today that you feel like can just take on random projects and just get stuff done, then that often is is bucketed into the chief of staff role. So somebody who can be like the right hand to a founder or a leader in a company. Um but yeah, if, if if that doesn't exist in the business today. I just think it's one of these interesting kind of trends of like jobs of the future that didn't really kind of exist, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, particularly in the entrepreneurial world. I mean, obviously it's kind of come from the military and it's been used in politics a lot as well. But, you know, it's it's becoming something that is, yeah, I mean, it's, it is that classic generalist role, really. Yeah, yeah. I, there are um, notably like levels of chief of staff that we see in tech startups. So uh, I think the most important thing is like, what do you really need that person to do? Like, what level should they be at? Is it somebody that um, is a strong generalist who maybe earlier in their career has a ton of energy, uh, the capability to do a lot of problem solving that you really trust in, in any situation? Is it somebody who need to be more strategic with you to, to issue comms alongside you? Yeah. Um, to be like more of a true chief of staff. And then obviously there's like another level up where they might be on the leadership team, sitting in board meetings and, and being a chief of staff in that way. Yeah. So it does, it is one of those um, roles and, and titles, I guess, in the tech world that can often mean many different things. What's the best startup title, job title you've seen? Because you're right, there's a lot of um, fancy different titles in startup land. So yeah, what's the, what's the most different job title you've seen in startup land? Oh gosh. Um, I saw one that I've always chuckled at, which was just like director of ideas. <laughs> uh, and I assume that was like around being creative and being innovative. Um, yeah, there, there, there are plenty. It's a, uh, yeah, every year um, I learn new, new job titles that fascinate me. Um, and what, what's your advice as well? Like one of the things that some of the more established entrepreneurs that have come on the show that have grown, you know, kind of large teams reflections is that sometimes they should have hired a chief people officer a bit earlier in the process obviously that's one of the 
kind of functions you you and the Octopus Ventures team bring in. But what's your kind of general advice on on that side of things? I think you need you definitely need to be focusing on people early. As soon as you're starting to hire people, you should have someone owning kind of that headspace and and setting you know goals and and just like paying attention to it and like caring about it more than when somebody asks you to um whether that's hiring somebody into the head of people role often it it naturally comes to um some fa- some CEOs some COOs but I do think you have to focus it on on it super super early and then um if you're able to bring in ahead of people as soon as you start hitting that growth stage so think around that series A when you're starting to build a team doing it quite rapidly yeah it can provide a lot of uh, buoyancy and like leverage for the entire company because it is something that you have to be intentional about um and it has to be nurtured i guess like the the warning i have on it and the thing that i, f- I think it's risky with hiring someone super early is that it, it i've seen it where um leaders say okay the head of people is here they're going to take care of all the people stuff like they're going to take care of culture they're going to take care of like everything i don't have to worry about it and as a leader of a company if you're the ceo coo like that is the thing that you also have to care about like the the head of people or chief people officer can can help you with that and can help facilitate your vision for it but they can't completely it's not something that you can just like chuck over the fence and and let it be yeah if you do that you risk misalignment um and it, yeah, it gets, I, I, that person then is not really set up for success. What do you find yourself recommending content-wise on a regular basis to founders? Great question. Um, the book I often recommend, most often, is called Who? How to Hire A Players. It's as nerdy as it sounds by Jeff Smart, but it's like a tre- treasure trove of ideas for interviews and, and, and recommendations for, for how to do that. Um, and each week we actually share a bunch of resources with uh, the portfolio that are then often shared in the Octopus Ventures newsletter. Um, but the the podcast I love the most and listen to um, that I get a lot of like ideas and energy from is uh, Adam Grant's Work Life podcast. He's an organizational psychologist um, and is often kind of going deep into to various like work related topics. Um, I know it sounds like I have a really lame content <laughs> not at all Diet. and jimmy's jobs as well um and also octopus ventures do some great content as well themselves right yeah absolutely so um again like the the newsletter that anyone can sign up for uh, to get each month a lot of our our blogs that we write um i have a great team uh, of experts on the people and talent topic write blogs often um so we do share that out amongst other things each month. We'll, we'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes as well so people can sign up to it and Final question. You work with entrepreneurs each day. Um, pass the mic to somebody that you think is would be particularly interesting that might not have had the spotlight shown on them yet. Um, gosh, yeah. it's a, I, I thought long and hard about this. Can I say a few names? Yes, of course. Some of the like wonderful, like I think some of the, the fantastic uh, female entrepreneurs that are you may not have heard of yet, but are definitely... We're going to be hearing of them. Yeah, yeah, you will be hearing of them. So... Anya Doherty, who is the founder of a company called Food Steps, who are trying to help uh, food uh, companies and businesses that deal with like food supply chains reduce their 
their impact on the climate. Yeah. Um, really, really cool. Victoria Prio, who is the founder of Her, H-U-R-R, which is a marketplace to rent and, and uh, rent out and, and rent uh, high-end luxury clothes at a, a lower cost, again, to reduce the impact on, on the environment. Um, and then Shardi Nahavandi, who uh, is the founder of a company called Tune, with two U's, um, they are trying to make, uh, they're working on making healthcare for women more accessible, uh, starting with uh, access to the better, like a better contraception. Yeah. Well, fantastic. They are some brilliant recommendations. And that classic startup thing of where actually it's quite a good tip going forward is spelling them out because it's basically down to trademarking, isn't it? Like it's like it's quite difficult, some of these things, to find new ways of doing names and so on. I spell all the time. <laughs> all the time, yeah. yeah. Laura, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been really insightful to hear how founders can hire and should hire the best talent. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.